Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we are examining a triple murder that took place back in 1960 at the Star of Rock State Park, located in LaSalle County, Illinois, along the bank of the Illinois River, where three women were brutally bludgeoned to death. My client, Chester Weger, was a 21-year-old dishwasher at the Star of Rock Lodge who was arrested for the brutal crimes, convicted, and served over 60 years in prison. Chester's currently 83 years old and out of prison on parole. We've been making the case on this podcast that Chester Wiga was wrongfully convicted of these horrendous murders. Today, we're going to talk about several more pieces of the puzzle that are consistent with the concept of premeditation and multiple offenders. We have a lot to talk about. Let's begin. Solving a murder mystery is like solving a jigsaw puzzle in that you can't see the full picture emerging until each individual piece interlocks with another surrounding piece. Solving the Star of Rock murders is like attempting a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, but without the guide of the picture on the box. One piece of the puzzle is William Palmatier. Another piece is his brother Glenn. Yet another is the mysterious kid with the bloody overalls in the trunk of his car. These pieces interlock with the pieces of the story told by the acquaintance of Smokey Rona, and those pieces interlock with eyewitness accounts, newspaper reports, and physical evidence. Little by little, the pieces are indeed coming together. But unlike a jigsaw puzzle from a box, not all the puzzle pieces are on the table for us yet. DNA test results will provide a few more pieces. Yet-to-be-discovered documents could add more. But perhaps the only way to finally complete this puzzle is with some small detail, some bit of minutia, remembered by someone out there listening, someone who may have the center puzzle piece necessary to finally bring all these interlocking parts together and allow the full picture of what really happened six decades ago to be revealed. But until all the pieces lock into place, the search continues for any detail that can shed light on the truth of the Starve Rock murders. Whitney, episode nine. Can you believe it? No, and I feel like we're actually just getting started. I know. I feel like I could do 99 episodes. I don't don't think people want that, but I I could talk about this in 99 episodes. I think I really could. Let me start with a DNA update. We submitted eight separate pieces of evidence for DNA testing, which includes hairs, twine, cigarette butts. We were originally scheduled to have the DNA results back by April 15th. We had a court hearing scheduled for today, April 18th, when we're recording this. And so we anticipated this podcast would end right about now in conjunction with the DNA results. However, this process has been taking much longer than anticipated for several reasons. And I want to explain it to everybody because I want to be just transparent about everything that's happening. It's a very labor-intensive process To carefully inspect hairs, you first have to determine which ones are the best candidates, 
which ones have roots. That takes a lot of time. There's been a backlog of cases at this lab we're using, Bodhi Technology, and there's been staffing issues. Our case is just like any other case. We have no special priority. We're just, we're a case on their docket that they're looking at like every other case because I've had some people ask me that. So we had a call with Bodhi Technology in Virginia last week, and they told us now because of all these reasons, it's probably going to take till the end of July to complete the DNA testing. So our court hearing that was scheduled for today has been rescheduled to August 1st. So what does that mean for the podcast? Okay, here's our current plan. As things stand today, I think, Whitney, I think we've got at least three more episodes mm -hmm. based on things you and I have talked about that we still need to discuss. We, we may have more than three, especially if we continue to get new developments, yeah. which we seem to be getting, right? <laughs> so three at least for sure, and probably a few more. So people out there, you know, you're not going to want to miss any of our episodes. And what we suggest you do are two things. First, you can subscribe to the podcast, which I would recommend. That way you'll be notified whenever a new episode comes out. You can also go to our website, andyhalepodcast.com, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can subscribe to the newsletter where we're going to have updates on everything we're doing, including the status of the DNA testing. Because we're probably going to, at some point, three, four, five episodes, whatever it might be, six, then we're going to, you know, basically put everything on hold and pause. And barring any new developments, we'll come back once we've got DNA results, we've got things to talk about. Or maybe in a month, we've got a break in development and we're mm -hmm. going to we're gonna drop a new episode. That's all very, very possible. So I think by people subscribing to the podcast and the newsletter is the best way to stay up to speed. And let me say, there's nobody more disappointed this is going to take longer than Chester Weger and me. Yeah. But there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to sit tight. We want to make sure the DNA testing is conducted properly and thoroughly. You can't rush the process. And I think these three months are going to fly by. Yeah. Especially if we keep finding new developments, which we seem to be finding. So that's where we're at. I wanted people to know where we're at with the DNA uh, this is fresh news. We just found out about it last week, and that's the status. So we're going to keep plugging forward. Are you ready to get going today? Do you have your seatbelt fastened? It is, as usual, and I'm I'm ready to uh, to to take this bumpy ride. Let's uh, let's dive in. All right. So I want to start and just talk about what I think is the foundation and the building block of this entire case. Everything we've been talking about which is telephone operator Lois Zelensic and the Palmateer brothers. I can't stress that enough. You know, that was episode seven. Anybody out there who hasn't listened to episode seven, you need to. That is the foundation to the entire case, okay? And we know from episode seven that at least three people were involved in some way in these murders. The kid with the bloody overalls in the trunk of the car, Glenn Palmateer from Aurora, Illinois, in William Palmatier of Peru, Illinois. We also know from that Zelensek memo in the Palmatier brothers, Chester Uyghur was not involved. He had no connection to those guys. There's nothing linking him to those guys. He is not part of that whole situation. 
So I look at this case as a giant jigsaw puzzle. And a big part of that puzzle in the middle has been completed. And those are all the pieces with Lois Zelensek, Glenn Palmatier, and William Palmatier. Now, in order to complete the puzzle, all the other pieces and smaller pieces that we have to attach have to fit. They have to fit to those puzzle pieces that are already on the table, okay? They have to fit together. And I think what we heard in episode eight about the Smokey Rona story, a lot of that story does fit. A lot of those puzzle pieces I do think match. In particular, and let me just stress this one more time before we move on, there's four key points I want to talk about with what you heard in episode eight and linking that to the Palmetier Brothers. Point one, we know on March 21st, 1960, five days after the women's bodies are discovered, Glenn Palmatier tells his brother that kid still has not gotten rid of the bloody overalls. That's weird. That's unusual. You would have expected the bloody clothes have been disposed of immediately. What does the man from Hennepin tell me? Smokey Rona did not get rid of the bloody clothes immediately. So that part matches up perfectly. Point two, Glenn Palmatier says the kid has the bloody overalls in the trunk of a car. What does the Hennepin man tell me? Smokey Rona has the bloody overalls in the trunk of a car. That part matches up perfectly too. Point three, Glenn Palmatier says the kid's getting a little anxious to know what he's going to do with them, referring to the bloody overalls. So there's a delay, some confusion, some apprehension. What does the Hennepin man tell me? Smokey Rona wanted to burn the bloody clothes that were in a garbage bag and the blankets from a car but he was concerned about black smoke, didn't know where or how to do it. There's this confusion, this pause, this delay. That part matches up perfectly as well. And then point four, William Palmatier tells his brother Glenn, tell him to burn him. And what does the Hennepin man tell me Smokey Rona wound up doing with the bloody clothes? He burned them in a burn pit in Bureau County. All four of those points match up perfectly. Those puzzle pieces fit perfectly. So, the Hennepin man's story is powerfully corroborated by what Glenn Palmatier tells his brother William. I just needed to stress that again, and I want everybody to understand, even though we are continuing to record episodes and talking about new things, I, I want everyone to know I could talk every single episode <laughs> about the Zelensek memo and the Palmatier brothers, because that was the huge break in the case that is the smoking gun. That is the link to the whole case. Now we just got to figure out the rest of the puzzle pieces. Okay, shall we continue, Whitney? Yeah, and I just want to throw this point in because I, I feel like it can't be hammered home enough times. The story from the man from Hennepin was brought to us before you found the Zelensic memo. Right. So it was not, his narrative was not influenced by knowledge of the Zelensic memo. So I just want everybody who's listening to just keep remembering that point. Excellent point. I'm glad you you reminded us. And before we go on to some new points, we have in other episodes done short little bios to give people an idea of uh, like George Spiros, Gerald Nemke, Glenn Palmatier, William Palmatier. Can you just spend a minute here giving us a little more insight into Smokey Rona, who he was, sure, what his background was? Yeah. I mean, 
if we had two hours, I'd read you his whole rap sheet, but I'm going to just, I'm just going <laughs> to hit the high points. Um, he, he's a native son of, of LaSalle County. So uh, he was just known around the, the county as basically being kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, local hoodlum, but sort of a guy who had just repeated charges of burglary, larceny. He did a few stints in prison. Uh, he was in prison and out by 1958. So in 1960, uh, the time of the murders, he is living in LaSalle and he's working as, quote, a construction worker. After the murders, he goes back to prison. And then this gentleman from Hennepin told us that uh, he went to prison on the East Coast. We couldn't corroborate that until uh, just this last week. And I found that he was, in fact, incarcerated in Maryland. And we know wow. that because he was states he was a state's witness and turned on a guy he was, uh, he was an informant uh, on a guy he was in prison with. So super interesting. He does he married, he had four kids. When he does eventually get out of prison, he does settle in Setonville in Bureau County and he lives out the rest of his life there uh, and it's a relatively quiet existence, but uh we can put it up on the website. His rap sheet is a mile long. Uh Were his kids did he have a Bobby and a Wanda? He sure did. He had a uh, a Bobby a son, another son named Smokey as well, Smokey Lee, actually, and then yeah, he he had a, a Kristen and a Wanda, and so yeah, so uh, the 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 account given to us by the gentleman from Hennepin absolutely matches up both on the address front, the family name front, and then the relationships and specific details all are corroborated by police records as well. You know, and with that kind of a rap sheet, it can hardly be surprising that somebody like this potentially was involved in these murders in some way clearly somebody who has a connection to criminal activity, has been involved in criminal activity, has committed crimes with numerous other people. It really makes a lot of sense. Let me pivot now. I want to talk about some other issues based on what we've learned in episode seven and episode eight. I've gone back to see what are, what other information out there may be consistent with the Palmetier Brothers and Smokey Rona and the concept of premeditation and multiple offenders. As I have said before, you can look at a document on day one. It doesn't mean much to you. You look at it a year later when you have all this new knowledge, it takes on a whole new meaning. And I want to go back and look at things that maybe at first blush didn't mean much to me. And now that they do, some of these issues may be a little smaller. And like I also say, it's all putting a little more sand on the pile little more sand on the pile till eventually you have a big pile. And collectively, all these little issues add up to make a very powerful case. Let's start with this issue. I always wanted to know, was this trip a spontaneous trip or was it planned? If it was spontaneous, I think there'd be an argument that, well, how could these murders have been planned? Mm -hmm. the, women just, the women just decided to take this trip the day before, two days before. Well, I found a March 17, 1960 Chicago Tribune newspaper article where Mr. Lundquist and Mr. Murphy said their wives had planned the holiday for, quote, several weeks. Yeah. This was not a spontaneous trip. It had been planned for several weeks. So my point is there would have been time to plan the murders. I think it's a little point, but it's worth noting. Second point, do you remember how the Hennepin man told me that Smokey Rona said the three men had followed the women into St. Louis Canyon. Do you remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In that same March 17th, 1960 Chicago Tribune News article, which I'm going to post on the website, andyhalepodcast.com. You can read it yourself. 
because I'm trying to be very factual and transparent here. It quotes Harlan Warren, and this is what it says. I'm going to read this quote verbatim. Warren said the investigators have found indisputable evidence that the killers trailed the women over a tortuous footpath, winding between trees, over boulders, and up and down the hill to the east end of St. Louis Canyon, end of quote. Wow, that's a pretty heavy quote. And it's interesting. Did you know he said killers, plural? Well, he also said indisputable. So somehow an indisputable fact several months later is just uh, set aside because, oh, I guess it's just one guy. I guess it's just Chester. I mean, I thought that was stunning. Again, when you read it the first time, you're like, oh, okay. But now when the Hennepin man told us these three guys follow the women into St. Louis Canyon, you hear that quote from Harlan Warren. Yeah. That matches up. That to me is like a, wow, that's indisputable evidence that they were trailed the way he said that? How do you go from indisputable evidence, right? You are you are marching forward with your case on the knowledge that there is that there is more than one person who stalked these women through the woods. And then by the end of your investigation, you're just like, well, no, I guess it's just one guy. I guess it's just one guy. You know, that's, that's another good point. We're going to have to make a list at the end of the podcast of all the things that were noted and then either fell by the wayside, yeah. were ignored, or changed. Like the murder weapon wasn't the tree branch. Yeah. You know, all the things we found out that fell by the wayside, that there was no 12-strand cord, all these things that then they followed the women in. You know, we could make, let's make a long list. Let's do that. Yeah. It was a robbery. Oh, wait, no, it wasn't. Nothing's yeah. actually missing. We'll post that at the end of the case. Here's another one, Whitney. We had handwritten notes from March 20th, 1960. I'm not sure if these notes are from the sheriff's office or the state's attorney's office. They're clearly from somebody investigating the case. And the and we're going to post these on the website too. You can read them. Victim A, it says, cord around left wrist, quote, no tension on cord, end of quote. Quote, no marks around wrist, cord loose. Victim C, cord around wrist, no tension on cord, no marks on wrist. I always thought that was odd and weird. If you were going to restrain somebody, you would want to make it tight, right, to restrain yeah. them. There should be marks on the wrist because it's tight. And also you would think somebody might be trying to break out of it yeah. and get free. Well, we had a woman reach out to us. She is a nurse practitioner and a former EMT now living in the D.C. area. She had some really insightful things to say about that. Let me share those with you. So she said that she noted the binding didn't leave any marks. She suggests that that cord would have been put on the women post-mortem. That's why you don't see any marks around the wrists, which you would expect to see. And this is what she said, her theory is, and I want to read this to you verbatim. I've just started listening to your podcast and was fascinated by several of the documents you posted. I'm a board-certified nurse practitioner and former EMT, like your co-host, and I immediately recognized what the bindings could have been used for. After looking at the limited autopsy documents, I think I'm on the right track. If you ever have to move an unconscious or deceased person, 
is I often have in medicine, the arms readily get in the way. In EMS, we would use medical tape or backboard straps to keep them tucked in. And then she talks about how the hands, if they're not secured when you're moving a body, mm-hmm. they drag and they get in the way. And think about this in these woods. Yeah, You're trying to drag somebody, sticks, branches, rocks, terrain up into a cave. Think of all the things those arms would catch on if you're just dragging a body. Yeah. So what she is suggesting, and I think this is really persuasive and insightful, that the women's hands were secured after they had been killed simply as a way to more easily get them and drag them up into the cave. What are your thoughts about that? That makes complete sense to me because that canyon is treacherous. I mean, think about yourself in that in that canyon, Andy. I mean, it's difficult to navigate when you are in perfect shape and and it's not covered in snow. But to try to then drag women through that area that's got a lot of underbrush, it's got a lot of rocks, it's exactly like you said, to me that this this makes complete sense because otherwise if those cords were for the purpose of actual restraint, you would have marks and bruising. You wouldn't just have sort of, you know, they're just loosely bound for what purpose? I mean, to me, that makes complete sense. And two other points, the more I think about this. The first is, if that's the case, which makes a lot of sense, that means these killers were experienced. Yeah, They knew how to do this. I wouldn't know this. I wouldn't have any idea, right? I mean, they were prepared for this possibility. They had twine with them to tie up these women's hands so they could easily drag them into the cave. It shows to me thoughtfulness, premeditation, and planning. And here's another powerful point too. If you remember, there was a document we posted that said one of the women's cord had been cut with a sharp knife. Mm -hmm. The other victim, I think, so that was A, and I think C had been cut with a something like a saw, a sawing motion then pulled apart. Yeah, with a serrated blade. Yeah. Yeah. You know what that strikes me as? Clearly, it's two different people. Yeah. It's two different people unsecuring the hands of those two victims. It's not the same person. If it's one killer and he's got a sharp knife, he'd untie, he'd cut the cord of everybody with the sharp knife. Yeah. There's two instruments being used, which means there's at least two people. There's two different guys cutting those victims. It is consistent with multiple offenders. So I think, I always say the devil's in the detail. So look, just now, just talking about the twine with no tension, the cord being loose, it potentially being used to bind the hands post-mortem, being cut by two different objects, very persuasive evidence of multiple offenders planning and premeditation, right? Yeah. Incredible. Let me go to another one. Whitney, I think this is often overlooked in the case. The red Orlon fibers that are found at the crime scene. Often overlooked, but these little things can, in many cases, become big. So there were, I want to just put everybody up to date. There's a April 19th, 1960 Chicago Tribune newspaper article. It says, the Eastman Kodak technicians also reported that a small bit of red fiber found in the cave was Orlon, a synthetic fabric. None of the murder victims, authorities said, wore any red Orlon fabric 
This led to a theory that the red fiber may have come from the killers. Let me go to another article, Chicago Tribune, May 14, 1960. Again, go to our website. You can read these yourself. Quote, three tiny particles of red fabric were evaluated Friday as an important new clue in the Starvrock State Park triple murder. The three tufts of red orlon mixed with wool were described by detectives as their best, though slender, lead. The pieces of fabric were discovered in the cave March 16th after the bodies of the women were found. Very interesting, these little red orlon fibers. So significant that they were cataloged, yeah. they were processed, and then there's actually a May 26, 1960 report. I found this really interesting from a textile engineer at the Sears Roebuck and Company to Sergeant Hall of the Illinois State Police. This is a written report. Subject, examination of fibers mounted between glass slides. These fibers exist. I saw them when I looked at the evidence. Red fibers under glass slides. So they were examining two of the red fibers found in the cave and fibers from the clothing of two men, George Spiros and a guy named Art Askew, A-S-K-E-W, who I believe also worked in the lodge. Mm -hmm. The report concludes that the fibers found in the cave did not appear to come from the clothing of these two men. But here is what's interesting. The report from this textile engineer at Sears Roebuck and Company as to the red Orland fibers found in the cave discussed the type of consumer item the red Orland fibers could have come from and one of the items mentioned was a blanket. Well, let me pause there. Do you remember the Hennepin Man talking about a blanket? Do you remember this? Uh, vividly, yes. I mean, he says that when they planned this out, mm -hmm. Smokey Rona said they put blankets in the two cars so that the three men who are doing the killing, when they come back to the getaway cars, they're not going to get blood all over the interior of the car. So they're sitting on blankets. They would have traveled to the to St. Louis Canyon sitting on the blankets. Mm -hmm. Wow, Whitney. I think what could have happened here is you've got the killers sitting on these blankets in the car. They've got fibers now on their clothing. And some of those blanket fibers get left at the crime scene. Not many, a yeah. few, and are recovered and analyzed. Wow. I think yeah. that's a little thing that might be very, very big. Well, I think what's also interesting about that is for those who are not familiar with what red Orlon is, it was a fiber made by DuPont. It's petroleum-based to be uh, – it's a synthetic fiber to mimic wool, like a wool blanket, but it burns. Uh, it's very flammable, and when it burns, it burns black. Oh, wow. And uh, that was exactly what the man from Hennepin said was one of the fears of burning the evidence from the crime scene is that black smoke would be a problem. I just thought that was such an interesting little piece of corroboration potentially that those red fibers could have, according to the textile engineer, could have mm -hmm. come from a blanket. And the Hennepin man said, Smokey Rona said, there were blankets in the car. The killers would have sat on these blankets. And that is how the fibers could have got transferred to the crime scene. Super interesting. One more topic, and this one really kind of blows my mind, Whitney. The more I think about this, it just gives me shivers. And I want to talk about Chester Weger's cousin, Danny Weger. So there is a 
local guy I interviewed, uh, this is a while back, well over a year ago, probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. I recorded the phone call with his permission. It's at a time when I was talking to anybody that had knowledge and had stories to tell me, I'm all ears. I'm, I, I'm always willing to listen to anything. He sat down, I talked to him for an hour, and he was telling me just things about growing up in Starve Rock, what he had heard, Chester Weger. He told me he was friends with Danny Weger, Chester's cousin. He also knew Chester, had met Chester, but he was good friends with Danny Weger. He said Danny would say he knew Chester was innocent. He knew it. And his, his quote to me was, Danny wouldn't let it go. Danny wouldn't let it go. He kept investigating the case. That makes sense. If I had a family member that was wrongfully convicted in prison, I would go to my grave trying to prove their innocence. It, it could take me years and decades. I would never give up. So he said that Danny Weger had spoken to some, a couple of guys in LaSalle, had spoken to a couple of guys in Peru, and told him he was getting close. It gives me goosebumps right now to say that. He was getting close, and he was going to be going to Chicago to talk to some more people. The guy I talked to said, well, who are these guys you're going to visit in Chicago? He says, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Insinuating like he'd be put in harm's mm-hmm. way. He's like, I can't tell anything about it. Danny Weger goes to Chicago, talks to whoever he talks to, and then a few weeks later, he is found hanging from a tree dead. Now, just the fact that he is found hanging from a tree shortly after coming back from this trip to Chicago, when he's supposedly getting information on the Chester Uyghur Starve Rock murder situation and getting close, I find that incredibly suspicious and eerie. Yeah. But I want you to talk. There's more. I want you to talk about what the circumstances were in terms of his death and how he was found, because this part, I still can't even wrap my head around. Yeah, so so Danny Ray Weger was found uh, by a father and son in 1971. Uh, he was hanging from a tree near Route 71 and the Vermilion River, uh, so right off the highway in the woods in LaSalle County. And um, according to this father and son, they said, well, his hands were tied behind his back. Okay. That's not the official record. The police came and cut the body down, and they identified the body as a unidentified African-American elderly male. What? Yeah. So the body that was found by this father and son that they said, oh, we recognized immediately as being Danny Ray Weger, was buried under the official uh, ruling of it being an unidentified elderly African American. It's put in the grave that, and it's classified that way. Yes, he is. He is buried by authorities and is classified as an unidentified African American elderly male. So the father and the son are not quiet about this. That they they tell people at the local barbershop, word gets around. So people in town knew, and uh, the family, the Uyghur family, said, "Hey, we want to know if that's in fact Danny Ray." And so they went to the courts, and they made they basically were able to get him exhumed. Now. The exhumation proved it was Danny Ray Weger because the exhumation said that the body had the same dental records. Uh, there was a, a broken leg and a pin in the knee that could match VA records. And he had, had straight black hair, which was consistent with the type of hair that, that Danny Ray had. Now, to add to the, the sort of sinister 
I don't know, connotations to this story, this body, right, this unidentified African-American elderly male that they, that they say that, that they found, that law enforcement says they found, had a ring and a wristwatch. This is a small town. This is a very small town. And people in the town are saying, no, that was Danny Ray Weger. If you're law enforcement, why don't you just call the Weger family and say, can you come and identify right. the body, the ring, and the watch? Now, Absolutely. eventually, when they did exhume the body, the family was able to provide receipts for the wristwatch and prove that, you know, beyond a shadow of the doubt, besides the, the physical evidence like the, the dental records matching and the pin in the knee, they had a receipt for the items found on the body. It was him. How can that happen, Whitney? How can Danny Ray Weger get buried and be classified as an unidentified African-American male? That's not an innocent mistake. No. Especially when people are telling you, we think it's Danny Weger, and he's got these pieces of jewelry on him. How does that happen? It doesn't. I mean, Danny Ray Weger looks very similar. We can post his picture uh, up on the website. Looks very similar to Chester. He had a, a very boyish face. I'm sorry, but you don't confuse a 32-year-old man's body, especially a 32-year-old Caucasian man's body, with an elderly African-American man. Anyone with any training, like a coroner, can tell the difference. I mean, you could say, oh, well, maybe maybe the skin tone changes after that. Not that much. I mean, you can tell the difference between pigment no and lividity. There's a big difference between what happens to a body in rigor mortis and race. I'm sorry. You can you can distinguish those those characteristics. So to me, there's 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 two possibilities. Either this is the most inept coroner ever, or there is a reason that he is misclassified. What Two questions. What year is this and where, like what town is he found in? He's found in LaSalle, right off the highway in the woods, off Route 178, right by the Vermilion River. And this is uh, this is 1970. So this is 10 years okay. after the uh, the murders. Well, I wanted to make sure it was still in the Starvrock area because oh, yeah. that's mm -hmm. where all the corruption is. So he's found in, in LaSalle. That's where all the corruption and cover-ups mm -hmm. taking place. That all makes sense. 10 years later, you could argue, well, gosh, I mean, 10 years later, this is still going on. This is such a big story. This yeah. is such a colossal cover-up. I mean, it, it, it's mind-blowing, the cover-up here and, and what's taking place. And like I said earlier, I'm not surprised Danny Weger is still investigating this 10 years later. I'd investigate it till my death. Yeah. You know, uh, so, I mean, 10 years later doesn't at all diminish to, my, to me that he was mm -mm. investigating Chester's, trying to prove Chester's innocence. That's just stunning to me. Let me also say somebody, I think when I told this story, said, oh, well, they heard that he had died by suicide. The guy I talked to refuted that. And, you know, there was no mention of Danny being depressed. It was more this dramatic story of like, he's investigating, he's getting close. Had you heard that suicide issue? Yeah. So, so you know, there's, there's like, like all matters pertaining to this, this crime, the town is split. And if you talk to people in the town, many, many people said, oh yeah, he suffered from, uh, you know, depression and he had suicidal ideation. Okay. That may be, I, I am certainly, you know, not going to discount that, but I don't care if he suffered from uh, any mental disorder. It doesn't answer the question of why law enforcement so right. egregiously bungled this or, or did they bungle it? Maybe it wasn't a bungling. Maybe it was a very intentional handling of a situation they wanted to go away. I don't see how you can make the argument that was accidental, it was negligent. That is so outrageous. Yeah. I, I can't imagine how that can be anything than an intentional act 
to cover it up. There's no way you're going to bury this. How old was he at the time? Uh, so he was born in 1938. So at the time of his disappearance and death, uh, he was 32. And he's classified, again, tell me again, he's classified as what? As an unidentified elderly African-American male. Un- unbelievable. I mean, we learn things all the time. I mean, this is why we have more episodes. There's so many things like this that make no sense, that you cannot believe, that you cannot wrap your head around. Think about the Zelensky memo, the Palmetier brothers, the Smokey Runner story, Danny Weger getting classified as an elderly African-American man. We'll have to make a list of all these things, Whitney. Yeah. It just... I cannot, my head's going to explode. Yeah, it, it's it's really his case, whether it's related to, to Chester Weger or not, is disturbing on its own merits. Well, let me also say this. Like I said about the man from Hennepin, this gentleman I talked to who was friends with Danny Weger, I talked to him for an hour. This is part of the story. He's talking about Chester growing up. Uh, he talked about they were camping, him and some friends, and he was wrestling with Chester, and he pinned Chester. Mm-hmm. And he told me the point of that story was, he's like, you know, Chester was not a strong guy. He's like, I pinned him. I was younger. There's no way he could have hauled these bodies, three bodies into a cave. He's just telling me about stories about growing up, knowing Danny, all these things in Starve Rock State Park. And the way he told this about Danny investigating and getting close was very, very credible. I believed him, and I believe him today. So another just stunning issue. We still have a lot to discuss, like I said at the top of the episode. I think we've got at least three episodes, probably more. We're going to continue to investigate every angle of this case, including the Zelensky memo, the Palmetier brothers, Smokey Rona, all these things. We have a lot more to talk about, believe it or not. And Whitney, I am looking forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I really enjoy talking about all these interlocking puzzle pieces. We've got a lot of the puzzle put together, but there is still more work to do. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode you won't want to miss. And if you want even more detail and information, please visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com, where each week we're posting the documents and newspaper articles that we discuss during each episode. Take a look, read them. And if you know anything about the Stavrock murders, please email us. We need your help. No information or tip is too small. We would love to hear it. And if you know anyone that you think was wrongfully convicted, reach out. We'd like to hear about that as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your favorable reviews and ratings mean so much to Whitney and me. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis, sound designed by Studio D, design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy, and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.